I just I gotta I gotta text my agent about something. Is that the intro? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it makes me seem real fucking Hollywood. Yeah, boy. This is the theme song at the start of the show. Stop wasting time on the theme song. Gonna watch a movie, got a thousand more to go. Stop wasting time on the theme song. Watching everything on Disney seeming like a chore. And since I started singing, they already added more. So stop wasting time on the theme song. Just tell us the name of the show. It's called the podcast or tennis shoes. What a terrible name for the show. It's worse than the theme song. Hello and welcome to the podcast War Tennis Shoes, the podcast where we watch and rank all 1,779 movies on Disney+. Plus. My name is Sean and I am here with my co-hosts Bob and Rob. And Rob, how are you doing today? I am doing pretty good. Yeah. I mean, no complaints. I'm excited to talk about this movie. I, unlike you two, have seen this movie a whole boatload. So uh, there was a lot of stuff where I'm sure you guys wrote more notes on it. I'm just like, oh, yeah, that's what happens. Like, (laughs) so I'm trying to make sure that I'll be following your lead on this conversation, I think. I've got a lot to talk about, but uh, it's like an old hat to me, whereas this is a... A, a new hat? Is that the metaphor? No, that's the wrong metaphor. But Yeah, this is a standard. This is just a jazz standard for you. You know, it's all the old routine. It's the old jokes. You just flew in from Denver, and boy, are your arms tired. Bobby, how about you? I'm doing good. I don't know if I'd say I'm old hat at this movie. I, I realized the parts I was remembering different movies, but we'll get into this. <laughs> how are you doing, Sean? Ooh, thank you for asking, Bobby. I am doing... Let's find out. I'm going to find out how well I'm doing. I'm just going to go into our app... I'm going to pull up our <laughs> podcast. I am going to scroll down. There are no new five-star ratings. All right, never mind. I'm doing horrible, guys. Doing horrible. My heart is breaking as we speak. There are no new five-star ratings. There are no new reviews. I would love to read one out, but we don't have one. Audience, we're running out of things to say. You you got to give us some content so that we can fill up 90 minutes of a podcast episode. That's all I'm asking for. Please, please. My children need wine. <laughs> Willow, which, as Robbie said, he has seen many, many times. <laughs> Bobby has seen once in a long time ago. And I saw once a very, very long time ago. I knew George Lucas had made another film. I had seen Star Wars. George Lucas made a space opera. Loved it. I had seen Indiana Jones. George Lucas made an adventure film. Loved it. And somebody told me, did you know George Lucas made a fantasy film? And I said, are you serious? Went down to my local family video, (laughs) borrowed Willow, took it straight home, plopped it into the VCR, watched it, and immediately forgot about everything I just saw and went, eh. But, um... I have to say, re-watching the film right now, I think 10-year-old Sean, who thought Willow was kind of eh, was mostly wrong. And I think the reason for that is that we lived in the dark ages of cinema, Bob and Rob. When we were kids, we grew up on watching classic films on VHS, used copies of VHS that we got from the video rental store that were worn out tapes with pan and scan framing. That is not the way to watch a lot of movies. There are a bunch of movies that I saw as a kid that I found to be quite underwhelming. And now as an adult, watching them in high definition in widescreen on a large television suddenly come out as these amazing masterpieces. And I said, what the hell changed? Uh, A good example of that is um, Ridley Scott's Alien, the first Alien movie. 
I watched that as a kid. I think I watched it at a Halloween party with you, Bob. It was fine. It was kind of scary, but I understood maybe 20% of what was happening in that film. And that's because when we watched it, it was a worn out tape with a muddy visual with garbled audio, pan and scan framing that would like move around the screen and you couldn't even see the alien in half the shots. And I was like, what are they running from? Probably like a 29 inch like CRT television. Like the alien is in shadows in that and is black. So you could, you couldn't even see a blob moving. It was just like crazy. And the thing that gets me is that people a generation before us, you know, 10, 20 years before we were watching films, they didn't have video rental stores, but what they had was they had a lot more repertoire theaters. So you would go to a theater and see a 35 millimeter print of a classic film. You know, in the 1970s, if you wanted to see something that came out 10 years ago, you'd have to wait for a repertoire theater to do it. But the good movies, they did pretty regularly. And then you'd see it the way it was meant to be seen. Whereas we went down to family video and rented something that was nay unwatchable. And then we walk away going like, what is this? So you're saying I should probably give Blade Runner another shot or is one enough? No, you should give Blade Runner another shot. That's a beautiful fucking movie. If you only ever saw it as a kid on a pan and scan VHS, you need to watch that again. That's another good example. One thing I'll say to your pan and scan point, I remember, I don't know what I was watching, but it was some sort of like, like, advertisement for widescreen it was when like widescreen movies were starting to be like they were trying to bring it out i remember it they would show you an example of what widescreen was before you watched it and actually i remember the the first movie i rented that ever had that was inner space with dennis quaid oh really yeah had a it had an example and it was like 15 seconds of a different movie in letterbox to get you ready for the movie you were about to watch yeah (laughs) <laughs> this one I remember was they showed a clip of, uh, yeah, Letterbox versus, uh, the Pan and Scan, but the movie they picked was Wild Things with Kevin Bacon <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> like Denise Richards and Naomi Campbell. I think but it was just like a shot of him. He's a cop. Uh, and it's just like him in a hallway. Right. Think about how much of the hallway you're missing. It was like, you normally would have to see this. And then it was just like a shot of Kevin Bacon. And then it was like shot of Kevin Bacon and the hallway. <laughs> I'm visualizing the commercial perfectly where like the screen expands widthwise, yes. And you just see yeah, yeah. like more of the hallway. I want to quickly touch on something I think you said and, what might have also changed your perceptions of this film when it came out was I'm going to bet you probably watched this in like fourth or fifth grade when you and I and another friend of ours were just hungry for Star Wars in an era where there was no Star Wars. Yeah. You had the three films and you had all the novelizations. And I think if you heard that, wait, George Lucas did another movie that wasn't Star Wars or Indiana Jones, like you were going to watch it. And this movie is... It's not Star Wars and it's not Indiana Jones. It's its own thing, but I wouldn't say it's quite as good as those movies. So I could also see why as a little kid that would disappoint you as well. Yeah. It's definitely not as good as those movies, but if I had seen it in a better format, I'm pretty confident I would have liked it more as a kid. I think it holds up pretty well compared to a lot of the fantasy films of the 80s and that era. Um, I genuinely feel like my negative feelings towards it were influenced by the fact that I saw a really crappy version of it that was just cropped poorly, had worn out videotape. I couldn't really appreciate the visuals. The visuals are like 
half of what's great about this thing. And by visuals, I mean the Vista's special effects are a little dodgy at times. Anyway, we'll get into that. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Willow. It is the story of a baby found in the reeds of a river who was placed there by a caretaker trying to hide from an evil pharaoh. And that baby grows up to lead the Jewish people out of... <laughs> oh, no, wait, that's... That's the story of Moses. I'm thinking of Moses. Okay, so this is the story of an evil ruler who, upon hearing the prophecy of a newborn child who will one day overthrow the kingdom, decides to set out on a massacre of the innocents and beckons all newborn children to be killed so that they cannot grow up to take them down. And this baby's family luckily leads them out of Bethlehem and into Nazareth. Oh, no, wait, that's the story of... Jesus. Um, okay, so this is the story of a group of heroic yet small-statured young men who are part of an idealistic pastoral community and who must shepherd a small package across a fantastic realm as <laughs> it is the only thing that will take down a dark lord. Oh, no, wait, that's Lord of the Rings. Um, <laughs> How many more of those you got in the can? <laughs> Bobby, what did you think about this movie <laughs> this this wouldn't have clocked when i was a kid i mean of course this movie is 25 years before the lord of the rings films came out however it is about 40 years after the books and i did quickly realize oh george lucas just made his own version of the lord of the rings yeah except it's a baby instead of a ring there's a lot of similarities when george lucas made star wars he said on many occasions that this was him just basically recreating Flash Gordon, and he took some of Kurosawa's The Forbidden... Uh, the Hidden Fortress. The Hidden Fortress, that's the name of it. He took something from The Hero with a Thousand Faces, and he put that all together into Star Wars. Um, for this movie, he took the story of Moses, the story of Jesus, and the story of Frodo Baggins, and he <laughs> threw that together... <laughs> And he made Willow. He didn't really try that hard to separate it from the influences. This is just Moses no. meets Lord of the Rings. I mean, yeah. I think there is some uh, full circle stuff there because rewatching Willow with a critical eye, I noticed like callbacks to this in Lord of the Rings. There are shots like of them like going to the when they go to. The Prancing Pony? The Prancing Pony. When they go to the Prancing Pony and it's just like Peter Jackson like eating a carrot, I was like, I'm pretty sure I had that exact same shot. There's like people at the bar that look like identical. There's like, there's a lot of homage paid to this movie. Maybe Peter Jackson was influenced by this. It's also just possible that this was just recreating scenes from the book in the same way that the films for Lord yeah. of the Rings were recreating scenes from the book. Uh, Willow, so the story was thought up by George Lucas in the early 70s as a fantasy film that he could pursue after THX 1138. Uh, he didn't really know how to pursue it at the time, and so he ended up first making American Graffiti and then Star Wars and Indiana Jones, and it wasn't until the mid-80s when he decided that perhaps Industrial Light and Magic was getting to a point where they could actually pursue making a big-budget fantasy extravaganza like Willow. Um, and at the time, Ron Howard was doing post-production for Cocoon at Industrial Light and Magic. And George Lucas obviously worked with Ron Howard on American Graffiti. So he approached him and pitched him on the story for Willow. Do you guys remember how big of a success Cocoon was? It was massive. It's, it's huge. And it's like a bunch of people swimming in an old folks' home. Like... <laughs> 
people people ate it up, man. Yeah, I can't tell you anything else besides Cocoon. I think there's aliens and cocoons, but they're just swimming in an old folks' home. It's like one of those <laughs> films, like when you find out like Three Men and a Baby was like the top grossing film yeah, of the year exactly. it came out, and you're like, well, how did that happen? Like, what, what year fuck? was this? What was in the water that year? The cocoon is like one of the top grossing films of. It was. It was like yeah. 1984, 1985. I think it came out in 1985. Ron Howard had back to back smashes. He could he did Splash in 1984 and Cocoon in 1985. Also about people swimming in a... No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> and so they started developing Willow together. It was written by Bob Dolman, who uh, was a sitcom writer, actually. He had written episodes of WKRP in Cincinnati, and he had written for the SCTV television series, the John Candy, Rick Moranis uh, sketch comedy series. Rewatching Willow, the one thing that jumped out to me is that this movie is funny. It's legitimately funny at times. Okay. Yeah, there's some funny stuff. There's also a lot of names to get to in terms of the special effects in this movie. Phil Tippett, one of the legends of stop motion animation, he did the stop motion in this film. We have Dennis Murren, who created a lot of uh, seminal CGI morphing technology that was created for this film. Um, and then went on to basically be the foundation of what was used in uh, Terminator 2. Bobby, I'm going to throw to you. What jumped out to you about the people involved in this film? The name I said out loud of all of them was Kevin Pollock. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the, the name that may be the happiest to pop up in this movie was Billy Barty because oh, yeah, I, I know. I loved Billy Barty as a kid. I mean, two of my favorite movies growing up were Masters of the Universe and Weird Al's UHF. And so just anytime he shows up in something, especially from the 80s, it just, it, it always makes me happy. And and again, he gives a knockout performance like he always does in these roles. Billy Barty plays the High Aldwin. So he is the wizard of the Nelwins, who are the little people that uh, populate. They are the Hobbit stands in stand-ins, essentially. Um, Rob, any names that jumped out to you? Uh, no, no names that really jumped out to me. Uh, I mean, again, I've, uh, the cast, I've, I, I knew everyone. There was no surprises, really, uh, in the cast, except for Princess Mombi, who was the evil queen in this. I couldn't- Jean Marsh. We got Jean Marsh. Yeah, I couldn't believe that I- did not remember Jean Marsh being in this film. She had a very narrow niche for a few years in the mid-80s. Hell yeah. Yeah, yeah. She was the evil queen, basically, in fantasy movies. When she wasn't, like, being a staple in Upstairs, Downstairs in England. Yeah. Um, I, I will actually say, after the fact, the name that jumped out for me of this film was that it was actually produced by Joe Johnston. Yeah, that one I wrote it down. Director of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, or The Rocketeer, uh, Captain America, The First Avenger. The thing I'll say about that is there is an excellent documentary on Disney Plus about Industrial Light and Magic called Light and Magic, and it is directed by Lawrence Kasdan, and it walks through the history hmm. of Industrial Light and Magic from the 1970s up into the early 90s. Uh, and they do a lot of interviews with Joe Johnston because Joe Johnston was one of those key early industrial light and magic people. He worked on the first three Star Wars. He designed Boba Fett. So Joe Johnston is responsible for Boba Fett rocketing himself into the Sarlacc pit. He didn't write Boba Fett. He designed the the thing that everyone likes about Boba Fett, he designed the costume. The only thing people know that was designed yeah, yeah. by Joe Johnson. <laughs> did George Lucas say he have a, a rocket pack or uh, a jetpack, or did Joe Johnson put that on and then they found a reason to use it? And it was for him to kill himself in the Sarlacc pit. <laughs> the one thing that I will say about that Boba Fett TV show on Disney Plus was that I was very glad that they kept 
consistent, where he is this basically Mr. Magoo-type character who bumbles around Tatooine, falling into the same Sarlacc pit over and over again. <laughs> it's basically the plot of the show. So, the thing is, is I never watched Boba Fett, uh, because I have no affinity for the character, because the only thing I remember him ever doing is killing himself in the Sarlacc pit. Um, and the fact that you say that Boba Fett is just him Mr. Magooing it makes me want to watch that show now, because that sounds awesome. <laughs> no, it's not. It's definitely not. But I will 100%, I'm going to spoiler alert this, in like episode three of the show, he falls into the same Sarlacc pit again. And I was like, you've <laughs> got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> no. Are you serious? Like, you've got to be fucking shitting me. <laughs> That's amazing. He went back there like he went back there to fall into it again <laughs> was he showing somebody he's like that's ah, the pit i fell into 30 years ah! right around <laughs> this time was when george lucas encouraged him to go to film school because he was an artist by trade he was a visual artist he actually designed the star wars logo as well he was kind of a jack of all trades working wow, for wow. george lucas in the late 70s in the late 80s george lucas basically went up to him and said if you go to film school, I will pay for your education and also keep you on half salary, and then you can become a director. And Joe Johnson said, why would I not do that? And so then he yeah, went on sure. to become the director of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Also, George Lucas called Disney and told them to give him the job as the director of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. So Jesus. George Lucas is a good guy to have in your corner, apparently. Yeah. Going back to Return to Oz. Right, yeah. As I was driving home today, I was like, oh yeah, we did another movie that was uh, not made by Disney originally, and it was The Great Muppet Caper, yeah. right? And then I was just like, wait, why is Willow on Disney Plus? Completely forgetting that they bought George Lucas. They bought Lucas Films. Yeah. Speaking of, did you notice the logo? This has to be a remastered logo, right? Like, the, the version on Disney Plus isn't the original cut, obviously. Because it's like the silver version of the logo. In back in the day, it was green. Yeah, I, I, I do know what you're talking about. So the Lucasfilm logo that appears before the movie starts does look like a later era Lucasfilm logo. Um, I never saw yeah. this in theaters, so and I didn't look this up or do research on it, so I can't yeah. say a hundred percent that this wasn't the logo in the '80s. But I just, I doubt it. I think this is a late '90s logo, which means it's probably added to. A DVD release, which is what they used when they put this on Disney Plus. Yeah. Here's for the sure. thing. It's George Lucas. He adds McClunky into his films. And <laughs> when he put Willow on DVD, he was probably like, let's put the good logo on that and take off the bad logo. It's a very George Lucas thing to do to update the logo. I was like, is this some sort of special edition that we're watching and don't know about? Oh, maybe. I don't know. I was listening for a McClunky. I didn't hear it. I did hear like five Wilhelm screams, but I didn't hear a McClunky. I counted three. They drove me nuts. <laughs> There's so many in this film. I uh, That is one thing. I am sound deaf to tone deaf to the Wilhelm scream. I can never identify it. I will listen to it and four seconds later, forget it. I cannot identify it in a movie, no matter what. I could identify Wilhelm Scream from, like, across a football field. <laughs> it's like my brain is attuned to it. It's like cats 
hearing a cat food tin being opened. Yeah. Like, <laughs> my Sean, my head just... You're in, a, you're in a football field and someone does the Wilhelm screen across, you're like, huh? it, it is. That, that, that is like the bag of whiskers for you, for sure. I can spot it wherever it happens, and it happens so much in this movie. And the thing is, this is before everyone got wise to it. It's unfortunate. I think if this movie was certainly made in this era, they would never put this many Wilhelm screams in. It was at the time when it was still an insult joke but unfortunately now that it's become an inside joke that everybody knows it's one of these things we're watching it you're just like fucking hell another wilhelm scream you gotta be <laughs> kidding me a couple of kind of big picture things to say about this film just so i don't forget this had a massive budget when it was made 35 million i think it was 35 million which wasn't the highest budget film of all time. It wasn't even the largest budget for that year because Who Framed Roger Rabbit came out the same year that had a budget uh, of 58 million, which is massive. Yeah, for the 80s, that's huge. I did a perusal and there aren't a lot of films that had larger budgets than this movie. Uh, Return of the Jedi was 35 to 40 million. So this almost had the same budget as Return wow, of the Jedi. Oh my goodness. It was one of the largest budgets of all time when it was made. When it came out, it ended up making about 60 million domestically, 137 worldwide. So it made a profit, but it was a small profit, and most people considered it somewhat of a disappointment considering how large the budget was, which I think is another reason for why it's kind of disappeared from everyone's memory. So I will say the movie uh, does look pretty beautiful. I really did appreciate all of the real locations and real sets. That's one thing that really stuck out to me in this is like, I'm sure there was a bunch of matte paintings they did. There's so many matte paintings, but they're gorgeous fucking That's matte paintings. That's what it is. Uh, there was something- Christopher Evans does the matte paintings in this movie and they're just yeah. amazing. There they're was something so good. tactile to it. They're smart about them. Yeah. yeah. You look and you're like, oh, that's a matte painting, but like they're in the foreground of the shot and it's just made, it's just made to look the shot deeper. So you know it's yeah. a matte, but you're like, but they're being smart with it and it looks great. It looks so good. But for whatever reason, it like- it brought me in rather than took me out of it. Like when you're watching, like I just watched the uh, Lord of the Rings TV show on Amazon. Gorgeous. It's one of the most beautiful TV shows I've ever seen. But there was something intrinsically in my brain that was like, that's all CG. Whereas watching this, like it was, as I was saying, like kind of tactile. Like it, it brought me into the movie, uh, just with the realism that they were, that they were able to achieve with it. Another point that actually brought me into the movie was the snow. I love that they actually filmed in real snow, right? They were on the top mm-hmm. of a mountain, and, and you can you can see their breath too. Yeah, like in a lot of it, it's cold. Yeah, out. and like when and Val Kilmer's like rolling around on the snow, and it's like stuck to his like shirt. I'm like, yeah, that's what would happen. Like you don't actually see that in movies. That scene specifically too, when he sneaks into her tent, he's still covered in snow, and I was like, oh wow, they had a snow wrangler on yeah. this. That's great. I I really dug all of those little details that really brought me into it and made the world feel real. I completely agree with that. It actually really reminded me of Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings in the sense that it was shot on locations. You could see vistas. Everything felt real. There's other good fantasy films. Princess Bride is a great fantasy film. It's probably overall a better film than this, but Princess Bride looks like it was shot in somebody's like basement. Yeah. Like you, it's cardboard sets. This looks fucking gorgeous. Yeah. You know, they threw the money on screen. Just in terms of talking about the visuals though, I'll also point out that the cinematography was done by Adrian Biddle, who also did the Princess Bride. Yeah. So there is a relationship there with the visuals and how it looks. <laughs> and, 
He did Reign of Fire, which I actually didn't oh, realize really? when we talked ah. about Reign of Fire. I mean, minus the compositing, I think it would have actually maybe looked like a decent film. Hey, listen, Adrian Biddle did some pretty fucking awful compositing in Willow, and he did some awful <laughs> compositing in Reign of Fire. Dude went his entire career without learning how to composite two images together. And, like, props to him. What a legend, all right? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Robbie, how does this movie start? Uh, it starts uh, with a some title cards uh giving the backstory i think right of um there's a prophecy about uh a child that will yeah. massacre of the innocents yeah yeah there story you go. of moses the story of yeah, jesus there you go it's on it's on, those, those the exact story is on the title cards of willow yeah uh, spoiler alert the, the, the text the title cards come up and they say you know about moses right yeah. you know about jesus yeah and then and then there's a new title card and it says this is like that yeah and then it says willow <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> this is like that. Uh, three dots, Willow. <laughs> George Lucas is calling his shot. Yeah. He's like, there's three classic stories in legend. Moses, Jesus, and Willow. <laughs> exactly. So the prophecy is, is uh, Princess Mobby is an evil queen. Um, and uh, there'll be a baby that's born that will overthrow them and bring, bring peace to the lands. The evil queen gets word of this prophecy and says, I'm going to kill all the babies. So none of these babies that are born are going to be able to overthrow me. So they, uh, the movie starts with the woman giving birth. They find this baby. Oh, my goodness. Of course, it's the baby of the prophecy. They have to get this baby out of the kingdom. They give it to a handmaid who then takes the baby, is chased by some weird looking dog things that is one of the uh special effects that definitely does not work <laughs> i'm gonna butt in here because i disagree with you 100 percent. okay and i'm gonna go back a second so in the introductory and the midwife smuggles the baby out of the castle and runs away and as she flees she is being pursued by what are clearly R.O.U.S.'s, yeah. rodents of unusual size. There's that, and then, uh, do you guys ever movie, remember the movie uh, Stargate? There's a horse that they, like, put on this giant costume on uh, in Stargate, and it reminded me of the same thing, because these are, like, Rottweil, Rottweilers that have, like, huge, huge costumes on. They look like, as you said, rodents of unusual size, or just, like, this just things that would not work they have the spindliest little legs comparative to their side it's some of the funniest things they they scared the crap out of me but the more that i watched them run i started laughing my face off because like if that thing its body mass is too big for its its legs have you ever seen the behind the scenes features for alien 3 david fincher's alien 3 where they originally yeah, yeah, yeah. were going to have the alien be a dog wearing an alien costume <laughs> and they shot test footage of this dog wearing an alien costume and it clearly looks like a dog wearing an alien costume <laughs> yeah. like it, it looks like a dog during halloween like it's walking it's 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 like pitter-pattering down the hall like a dog it's the most ridiculous thing and the special features are there so that they can introduce Introduce it by saying, yeah, we shot this once and then we realized, whoa, this isn't going to work. And then we went in another direction. I feel like the ROUSs in this film work way better. I actually really liked them. I mean, it's fair enough if you thought it looked bad, but I thought they looked really menacing. I thought it, it was these giant rat creatures that were like hunting people yeah. through the woods. I thought it was quite terrifying, I, I, to be I perfectly honest. Bobby, what did you think? I think it was the legs that were too small for the size that made them look like they would fall over in a moment. No, I, I dug the rat dogs. <laughs> um, 
I kind of go into what Sean said. You don't get a good enough look at them to really pick apart. Like, you're an adult. You know they're just dogs in rat costumes, and it's adorable. <laughs> and especially because you can, like, see them, like, being happy. Um, but you don't get a good enough look at them. So they do their part, and it gives them some lifelike movement yeah. to it. I didn't mind the rat dogs. Uh, I was really going to touch on the note. I watched this movie with my wife, and... Her description of the introduction of the movie was, and the baby is rescued thanks to the invisible labor of women. Aw, yep. Because the baby's smuggled out in a laundry basket and nobody thinks to look at her. My note wasn't quite as intellectual and feminist. My note was simply, that's clearly a baby in that basket. (laughs) (laughs) This woman, like, nobody even looks twice at her. Like, she's carrying a bassinet. Yeah. Yeah. If they're like... Quick, nobody let the baby out. We're going to kill it. And then a woman walks by carrying a bassinet with something shrouded over it. My first impulse is say, that might be a baby in that bassinet. Yeah. <laughs> nobody looks. That midwife like, seems yeah, to be along. carrying a baby. <laughs> <laughs> My wife, actually, she she didn't want us to do this movie because she said it's one of her favorites and she didn't want us to uh, pick it apart and make fun of it. And I was like, I don't, you know, I think it's going to be good enough that we'll just talk about it and, and have fun with it versus actually, this isn't the even Stevens movie. Like, we're not ripping this thing apart. This is an actual good movie. No, I mean, spoiler alert, I have criticisms, but I liked this film. Yeah. You know, when this movie's bad, it's not so great. But when this movie's fun, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think it moves it. I think the pacing really does a lot for this film because it moves at a wicked pace. Like it never really slows down for uh, an unreasonable amount of time. It always moves on to something new. Anyway, Rob, go on. You were saying something else. You're talking about how your wife didn't want us to talk about this film. Luckily, she doesn't. She's not the boss of us. <laughs> but she watched the movie again with me last night. She dug it as much as the first time she saw it. She's seen this thing way more than me. She used to watch it all the time when she was a kid. All right. The midwife pursued through the woods. I I think I got to say chronologically, there's an important distinction here. So as the midwife escapes from the castle, we enter a montage. It's a credit sequence. Yeah. So we run through the credits. We we learn that Ron Howard directed this. It's a story by George Lucas. Yada, yada, yada. James Horner does the score. Titanic's own James Horner. James Cameron's best friend, James Horner. The James Brothers. <laughs> I have my thoughts on the score. We'll get to it. Okay. We'll talk about the score later. And while this is happening, there's a bunch of beautiful Vista shots. And there is a bunch of very different beautiful Vista shots. She's in the mountains. She's in the valley. She's in a desert. She's in a forest. And at a certain point, you start to go, <laughs> how far did this woman walk? And how long oh, dude. has she been fleeing? And then when you see her, like, cradle the baby, you're like, that baby is two months old now? Oh, it's it's more than that. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's an older looking baby. That's not a baby anymore. That's a toddler. <laughs> no, it's not a toddler. But it's certainly not a newborn. Yeah, and they put a wig on it. They put a wig on the baby to show that time passed because that baby has a full head of hair. Like, <laughs> yeah, I know. Like, she's been fleeing for a while. But at yeah. some point, the R.O.U.S.'s catch up to her. And so she, like Moses puts the baby into the reeds and floats it down the river so that it can escape to be found by a heroic family that will take it under its wing. Bobby, what happens next? Willow's two children find the baby floating in the river, and they come tell their father Willow. Quick note, and we can get onto this. Um, I don't know why it didn't clock on me when I watched this. Warwick Davis is 17 in this movie. Yes. And he is fucking amazing. Yes, number one. Totally agree, Warwick Davis is awesome in this film. Number two, 
It's crazy that he is 17 in this movie and he has two children who are approximately four or five ten years and old. 12. They're not 10 and 12, but they're like four or five years <laughs> That's old. That's what they were. No, they were not. Those actors were not 10 and 12. What are you talking about? You're losing your mind here, man. Those those kids no, are like- um, they were 10 years- Sorry, they were 10 years younger than him. 10 years younger than him, 10 years- and 12 years younger than him. So they were five and seven. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. Sorry. I, uh, that makes a bit more sense. I thought they were both around five, but five and seven, yeah. Yeah. Warwick Davis got busy pretty young, so... Apparently George Lucas, uh, Warwick Davis was one of the lead, um... He played Wicket in Return of the Jedi. Yeah. Wicket, yes. Yeah. And Return of the Jedi. Um, one of the Ewoks, right? And, uh, and George Lucas was like, you know what, kid? I'm gonna put you in, like, my next movie, pretty much. And, and five years later, he did. And yeah. put him as the lead role in it. And apparently, uh, like, Val Kilmer is top build in this, and George Lucas, like, threw a stink because Warwick Davis should have been top build. Val Kilmer is really good in this, too. I, I like the whole cast. The whole cast is very good. And they tell him they found a baby in the river, and he doesn't believe them. When he goes to take a look at it himself, he errs on the side of caution because it could be dangerous and says, well, why don't we just push the baby further down the river and forget we ever saw it, <laughs> which got a dark chuckle out of me. I laughed too. I was like, what's this baby? I don't know. Let's just, no, the next town will take care of it. The thing I liked about it is that he looks at the baby and he says, oh, this is a daikini baby. And so there's a lot of fantasy world building in this movie where everything has a made up name, but he explains that daikinis are giants who live very far away. And I liked how they reversed the expectations or the point of view of what you consider to be the status quo in terms of sure. Warwick Davis is a little person and everyone in his community is a little person. They call themselves the Nelwyn. Nelwyn, yeah. They call themselves Nelwyn, which are kind of like hobbits, um, but all of the actors who portray these Nelwins are actual little people, and so the non-little people actors who are in this film are actually, from their perspective, giants. They're disproportioned giant people. And I really liked how, right from the beginning of the film, they kind of reorient your expectations and your point of view in that Just way. Just to touch on a point you made, I do actually want to say that, as much as I had my gripes with as aspects of this movie, the world building in it is very good. As you just said, the way they described the like what we were to see as regular sized people as being giants, even to the point that uh, the Nelwyn have an ethnic slur against them that the rest of the world uses against they them. They use it so much in this film, and they use, they feel comfortable using it, I guess, as filmmakers because they invented it. But because it's still clearly an ethnic slur, it made me very uncomfortable. Oh, really? And I really <laughs> kind of wish they hadn't used it so much because every time it happened, I sort of cringed a bit. I have to be perfectly honest. No, you shouldn't be saying that. <laughs> the, the, like the town mayor shows up. Uh, Burglecut, like my favorite name Burglecut. of any character ever. It's so fucking funny. And yeah. uh, he shows up uh, right as Willow finds the baby. And Burglecut's up to no good. He wants Willow's land um, for his own. And so uh, Willow's just like, I got to hide this baby. For whatever reason, because he doesn't want any trouble. Uh, but then, uh, lo and behold, his wife goes and finds the baby and just like, oh, baby's ours now. And uh, they're going to take care of it. And Willow's just like throwing such a stick. It's really quite good. His acting in this was was awesome. Like his reaction. He's like, is nobody listening to me? Like, <laughs> it's so good. The shot of Willow finding the baby. I was like, is that baby acting right now? 
Like, I, like, th- th- whatever they did to make that baby react in the ways that it did was amazing. Cause that baby was acting. That was a performance. Let's just touch on that right now. This is, this, throughout this entire film, this is top tier baby acting. <laughs> like, I fucking hate babies and don't like children to begin with. And this baby was amazing in right? this movie. Like, that baby did so much in this movie. And it, like, every single shot they got of it conveyed it perfectly. It was, it was so good. One of the, like, I think it's the one sorceress, like, does or says something, and the baby gives her this look of, like, I don't know, girl, that seems to be a bit much. <laughs> I mean, I think it was a lot of editing. Sure, sure. Give no credit to the baby itself. Give it all to the editors. I am 100% taking credit away from that baby. Fuck that baby. Um, but uh, I felt like they approached it in the same way that they approached R2-D2. I know what you're talking about, Rob and Bob, for that particular scene where Warwick Davis goes, let's just push the baby into the river and pretend we- like we never saw it. It cuts to the baby, and then the baby goes, <laughs> that's just cutting to R2-D2 and having R2-D2 kind of like move slightly and go, <laughs> sure, but that is a robot controlled by humans doing something on command where this is a literal baby it's kenny baker in a costume come on (laughs) let's give credit where credit is due okay all right so they bring the baby in and then what happens is that they all go to bilbo baggins 111st birthday (laughs) complete with a wicker man in the center of their party which i assume they're going to burn the least successful member of the village alive for the crop yeah the magician who uh who comes in last place they toss it in there. <laughs> the important narrative point here is that we see that Warwick Davis is an amateur magician where he does illusions, Michael, and uh, uh, he makes a pig disappear at one point. He puts a, he puts this pig under a cloak and he says, I will make this pig disappear. And then he waves his hands and then he pulls the cloak away and the pig is gone, just like a standard magician trick. And then the pig runs out from behind him and everybody laughs at him because it's just an amateur illusion and Warwick Davis is embarrassed by Before it. Before that, Cut's like watching the performance and he's just like, no, it's not bad. Way to go, Willow. <laughs> they tell an entire story through Burglecut's reactions. You know, like Burglecut walks up and he's like, what the fuck is this shit? And then Warwick Davis is like, I'm going to make a pig disappear. And he's like, like hell, he's going to make a pig disappear. I'd like to see that happen. And then he makes the pig disappear. And Burglecut is like, oh my God, that's really impressive. <laughs> yeah, Maybe like- Warwick Davis is actually a really good magician. Yeah. And then the pig runs out and he's like, I knew he didn't know how to make a pig disappear. I really do like the idea, though. That there is a Sorcerer's Apprentice competition going on, right? Where the sorcerer actually has real magic, but all of his apprentices are just doing sleight of hand. Like, like no one has real magic to do anything. And so it's just like, those skills really aren't transferable, I don't feel. <laughs> like, you know, one is legit magic and one is doing card tricks, right? And like, uh, okay. I mean, who else would you get to be an apprentice? But... Yeah, I mean, I know they, they, they do the sleight of hand at the beginning to pay off at the ending, which I get, but at the same time, I'm like, those, those things really aren't the same. What you're describing is the fact that part of this whole ceremony, part of Bilbo Baggins' 111st birthday, is that the High Alduin of the community, who is the lead sorcerer, is going to choose his new apprentice. And Warwick Davis really wants to be the new apprentice, and he feels like this is his year. And so at the end, after everyone has been dancing and singing and laughing at Warwick Davis's pig, 
everyone goes on <laughs> our Warwick Davis goes on stage along with a few other people who are going to compete to be the new apprentice to the High Aldwin. So, and that is when we are introduced to Billy Barty. I love him in this film so much. Yeah. I know, Bobby, you say you love him in a lot of things, but like watching this, I'm just like, he understood the assignment so well <laughs> i uh, he's such a joy every single scene that he's in what did you think about this sequence bobby um i mean i like that his credit is that he's given a special appearance by in the opening credits which was nice because again to me it is special i just loved him and everything but it's like you say it's you know it's a movie but you're like no 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 everyone else is acting this guy's a fucking wizard they actually hired a wizard to show up in this scene <laughs> it's as sean kind of said it's like billy barty just he understood the assignment and he is like, even just the, the way he holds himself and just like the way he's looking at everyone. And when he's holding up his hand saying like, which finger holds like the power of all the power of the world, like just everything about his performance. And you're just like, okay, yeah, no, this dude is, he's just killing it. I loved the way he squinted with one eye. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The high Aldwin is going to choose his high apprentice with a test. And the test is, is that he asks all of these would be apprentices to choose which finger is the one that controls the power of the world. And he holds up four fingers. And the first person chooses the index finger and he goes, no. The second person chooses the middle finger and he goes, no. And then he comes to Warwick and Warwick is reluctant and he kind of hesitates and he doesn't know. And then he chooses the ring finger and the high Aldwin goes, no. And then the high Aldwin goes, there will be no apprentice this year and leaves. And Warwick Davis is very disappointed, but he doesn't have long to be very disappointed because soon after, the R.O.U.S.s show up and they ransack the village. Luckily, there's a bunch of heroic warriors, basically, jump out with spears and they kill this R.O.U.S. And they find that this rat dog <laughs> has, like, a bassinet on it. And they go, it was looking for somebody's baby. And I got questions about this part of the movie. Like, what was this rat dog going to do? Like, what, is this rat dog sentient enough that it was going to somehow get the baby into this bassinet and then carry it back to the castle? No, it it doesn't have a bassinet. It It destroys a bassinet. There is a bassinet and it goes right for it and tears it to shreds. And then that's when the warriors sp kill it with their spears. Okay. Two things I'll say to that, Bob. One, that makes more sense. But I will say they needed to take this baby alive. So why then was this rat dog like tearing apart a bassinet? That doesn't seem to make sense either. Uh, I will defer to the Simpsons. Uh, so when they find him, they'll just bring it back. Right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. So. That, that explains one question, but just raises more questions. But uh, we'll just move on. Because of this, they suspect that the rat dogs are looking for a baby. Warwick Davis believes it's probably the baby he found in the river. And they decide they have to take this baby to the council. He walks the baby into this council as everyone's debating what to do about these horrible rat dogs that are invading the town. And everyone's yelling, who is to blame for this? Let's find out who is to blame and then throw them in the pit. Throw them in the pit. And everyone starts chanting, throw them in yeah, the pit. <laughs> and I was like, what pit? <laughs> like, what pit is this? And they are so quick to violence. <laughs> that, that is their go-to move. When someone upsets them, they throw in them the in the pit. And the thing is, it's not, it's not a pit. 
This town has the pit. The there pit. is one pit where they throw people <laughs> when they don't like those people. What do you think is going on with this pit? Um, uh, I yeah. Uh, the pit. Yeah, it's, it's freaking hilarious. Um, and no wonder, uh, Willow was, uh, like very scared when Burglecut came to his farm because I'm assuming that, like, that's what's gonna happen to Willow if, for whatever reason, he, like, defaults on his farm mortgage. He's getting tossed in the pit. I wouldn't want Burglecut to be in charge of the pit, to no, be no, perfectly no, 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 no. honest. That's, no, no, no. that's a very, like, Trump with the nuclear coats kind of a situation. Yeah, Burglecut is not trustworthy, uh, through all the course of this film. He shouldn't, he shouldn't know where the pit is. No, he should know where I the pit like is. I don't like him. <laughs> um, this is after this scene, or it could have been right before this scene. We get, uh, the introduction of Skeletor. Uh, and, um, um, what's her name? Sorsha. We cut back to the evil castle, and we have Babmorda, the evil queen, her daughter Sorsha, who is in charge of her forces, is the impression I get. And then, like you said, Skeletor, which is her lieutenant, yeah. uh, who wears a big skeleton mask. I thought that guy was cool as shit. I don't have his name written down here. I apologize. Pat Roach. There we go. Thank you, Bobby. You're much more considerate than I am. Pat Roach, he um, was in a bunch of Indiana Jones films. He was in both Raiders of the Lost Ark and Temple of Doom as the big guy that Indiana Jones has to fight. And in this one, he plays Skeletor. He's also on Conan the Destroyer. Big Pat Roach fan over here. He has to have that skeleton mask to hide all his mutton chops. Like, his beard, his facial hair they put on him in this movie is huge. <laughs> I remember, you guys know, but the listeners obviously don't. My mom is big into fantasy and sci-fi, and I was raised on a lot of this. And the reason I actually wanted to see Willow as a child was because I was going through one of her picture books or, like, books about the history of sci-fi fantasy films she bought. And I saw a picture of Pat Roach in that costume, and I was like, Mom, what movie is this from? And she said, oh, it's from Willow. We should rent it. And that was what actually got her to rent me Willow. So, yeah, just like I was drawn to Willow because of George Lucas, you were drawn to Willow because of Pat Roach. Wow. And then we became best friends. (laughs) Yeah, then we did become best friends. I was stupidly enough because i remember like saying to my wife as we're watching this i said oh that i captain of regard as like a sweet helmet and then it showed up and i was like oh that helmet looks differently when i remember and i went right because i'm actually remembering bruce campbell's mask which is a nod to this from army of darkness and not the actual one from willow doesn't um the bad guy from the first highlander have the same mask and skeletor obviously have the same mask it's a pretty common thing in fantasy from the 80s. Skeletor, that is just Skeletor's face. He's Skeletor because he's a skeleton. And uh, Lord Zed has a chrome version. Lord Zed. (laughs) I, I wrote most of the dialogue down where he says to her, the baby from the prophecy that will destroy you, yes... I needed to perform the ritual to to expel its soul into oblivion, which is the shittiest exposition-heavy line I've heard in a long time. Yeah, they had to get that out there. It's not clear at all why she can't just kill this baby. Nope. Or how the premonition works or how the prophecy works or any of this. Nope. It's all kind of nonsense. It's just to move the story yeah. forward. Um, This is the point in time where I will... Say, Skeletor and Sorsha go back and forth to that castle 
a lot of times in this movie. Yeah, because it's next door to the other castle at the end of the movie. They are like on this trek in the wilds, and then they are just making little day trips back to the evil queen's castle. It's they're like it's like going to Mordor, right? But they're just like, I'm going to go all the way across the map and then go back to Mordor, and then all the way across the map and back to Mordor like four times. They, they go back and they have to cross a mountain. I was like, how many times did they cross that mountain? Because clearly they like go to the snowtop peaks. The midwife travels right. from... Mordor to the Shire, and it takes months. And then Sersha and all these people travel back and forth between all the events. Like, it's just down the block. Yeah. Like, they have a car and they're going back and exactly. forth from, you know, the the local 7-Eleven. I was going to say, one point in time, Skeletor comes back and just says, by the way, sorry, we uh, we didn't we didn't catch it. We're going to go back and uh, go look for it again. Like, literally, that's what he did. He went all the way back just to do that. To, like, send her a text. Except exactly. he has to go all the way back to Mordor yeah, to, like, like, send her a text. he, rode for, like, 100,000 miles just to go do that. It reminds me of how, like, in the Game of Thrones books... George R.R. R. Martin spends a lot of time building the world and he spends a lot of time um, walking through how long it takes to get between places. And there's a lot of narrative that occurs between places. And in the Game of Thrones television series for the first five seasons or so, they emulate that and they follow the narrative of the books. And then in the last two seasons, all of a sudden, everyone can get everywhere in like five minutes and they have narratives where someone is like, quick go all the way to the other side of the country and then it happens in the same day and suddenly spatial geography stops making sense and that's basically what happens in this movie nobody cares about spatial geography things take either two months or two hours to travel depending on what the narrative requires yes that is one knock on it it's about a journey but the bad guys are just journeying back and forth constantly (laughs) At this town council, as Warwick Davis brings the baby, as Willow brings the baby into the council, he brings it to the High Aldwin and he says, this is the baby that they were after. And the High Aldwin <laughs> says, we must return... I'm sorry. What are you laughing at? I'm just sorry. I just read one of my notes and it made me laugh thinking of it. I'm sorry. It's just Kevin Pollack going, I stole the baby. I stole the baby. (laughs) I'm sorry. I apologize. Yeah, we'll get there. We'll get there. Sorry. Go back. I just couldn't control myself. (laughs) All right. He brings the baby to the high Aldwin. And the High Aldwin says, this is a Daikini baby. It needs to be returned to the Daikini. And they decide that they need to take the baby into the Daikini's realm, outside of their realm. They have to build a fellowship, if you will, who will take this powerful object across the land. They ask, who shall take this baby? And the High Aldwin initially will consult the bones, is what he says. And he takes his satchel of bones out from his pocket, and he shakes these bones, and he throws them on the ground. And then he looks at the bones, and then he brings Warwick in close, and he says, The bones tell me nothing. And then he says, Do you want to take this baby? (laughs) Warwick says, Yeah, okay. And then everybody in the High Council goes, praise the bones! Praise the bones! And it's so funny. It's so funny. And then he sends a bunch of other people with him, including Mayor Zaffa Beeblebrox. Burglecut and Migosh. Burglecut. And Willow. Uh, These names are not created equally. I'm just going to say, like, our lead character got got the best name out of the whole town. Well, you don't know what the expectations are. I mean, we're coming from our culture where we think Willow's a cool name. That's fair. Maybe there, everyone makes fun of his name. And 
Beeblebrox has the cool name. Who knows? That's fair. That's why he became mayor. Yes. He's like the Tom Cruise of their local community. (laughs) He's the tallest, I think. So they all take this baby across the land, and there's a very triumphant... The music plays its fellowship theme as they walk across waterfalls and valleys and mountains, and they take this baby into the Daikini land, and it's what they call the crossroads. So that is the kind of border between their land and the Daikini land. And when they get there, there are a bunch of crow's cages. One of them contains a skeleton. The other contains Val Kilmer. Bobby, what did you think about this scene? I liked Val Kilmer, not just in this scene, but in this whole movie. He's actually quite good. He's quite charming, and we will get into it later. Um, But the way he boasts about himself, he's a lot of fun. I mean, as you will get to, perhaps this was very cringeworthy for you. Um, He uses that ethnic slur quite a lot in this scene. (laughs) Just to be clear with the audience, we can now describe it. Val Kilmer introduces the ethnic slur that they use against these little people, and that is they call them peck. And it's clearly offensive to them. They clearly don't like being called peck, but everyone in the movie keeps calling them peck, and they use it all the time. And eventually I was like, Stop saying that. It's clearly (laughs) offensive. And it kind of bugged me. It was really weird. Like, I know it means nothing. They invented it. But it it, it bugged me, to be perfectly honest. And the other thing I'll say about Val Kilmer is that this is in the era when Val Kilmer was a comedy actor. Um, It's kind of weird to remember. But in the 80s, he started out in comedies. He was in the movie Real Genius. He was in Top Secret, and then he made this shortly after those two films. So he was known as a comedy actor, and he is playing this as a comedy. This is comedy actor Val Kilmer. This is Top Secret actor Val Kilmer. And shortly after this, he basically never does comedy again. It's hard to watch this and then watch his performance in Batman Forever and realize it's the same actor. He does comedy later on, like, uh, he did get into comedy. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang is a great movie that's very funny. Val Kilmer's very funny in it, but it's still not the same kind of slapstick, broad humor he was doing in the 80s. I just couldn't get over how uh, dirty Val Kilmer's teeth were. Uh, I wrote that down, And then how immediately clean they were in the next scene. He's been locked in a cage, and when he got to the Prancing Pony, he's able to use someone's toothbrush. Yeah, 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 they're whitening toothpaste, and they went in for some bleach treatment as well. Because he has the pearliest white chompers in this movie I've ever seen, except for this first scene where he's, yeah, locked in a cage and made to look, you know, horrible. It's like the scene in The Mummy where Brendan Fraser's in the jail cell, and he's got the long hair and the beard and everything. And then he cleans up pretty well after that. I can't get over his name, though, Matt Mardigan. Um, it's one word uh, and not two. Um, and clearly it should be two names. His name should be Mardigan with the prefix mad. Like, <laughs> but it's one word. And they say it so many times. Like, Warwick Davis's like, primary line, if you did, like, a control F for his lines in the script – Number one would probably be Mad Mardigan followed by Alora Dannon. Yeah, when I saw this movie as a kid, I thought Mad was an honorific or a title that he had been given. Yeah, because he's like in a cage, he's insane. So what happens in this scene is that they found themselves a Daikini man and they say, let's give the baby to this Daikini man. Let's let him out of his cage and then we're done. We can go home. And Warwick Davis is reluctant to do that because he's clearly... 
a crazy person who's been locked in a cage for a reason. His first name appears to be Mad. So that's the first <laughs> red flag from Warwick Davis's yep. impression. The the rest of the fellowship leaves. Samwise Gamgee stays around for a while, but then he eventually leaves. <laughs> that's just there to, A, give some exposition about the fact that an army passes by and they can comment on how there's this large battle going on. They can introduce the fact that there's another army that's opposed to um, the, the rule of Bebmorda. It doesn't really matter. Eventually, Warwick Davis decides to give this baby to... Man, There's uh, the 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 army, the lead character. There, he actually is a character. Uh, Eric, I think, is his name. The American Viking, except for <laughs> I found after the fact that he's Irish. Uh, um, so he's doing an American accent. I think he's doing an American accent because Val Kilmer is American, but everyone else is British. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's like Irish, so like his he could have done an Irish accent or a British accent, you know, it probably would have worked out just fine. But he's putting on, like, a heavy American accent to be a Viking. Um, and I just, it kind of, it's like Matt Damon in The Great Wall. It just kind of throws you out a little bit, you know? <laughs> when you're seeing, like, these American people doing an American accent, I should say, uh, in historical epics. Yeah, I, I don't really care about this character. He shows up later. He's, he's somewhat relevant to the narrative, but he's very forgettable. I don't really care about it. Uh, there was backstory that was cut out of this, apparently. There's a lot of world building. You know, they, they like released a whole yeah. comic series and yeah. novels about this world. It, it's kind of interesting stuff, but I don't think it's particularly relevant for the narrative that's happening in the film itself, which, as as I've said before, is just Moses' Jesus Hobbit. Well, the reason why Mad Mardigan was in the crow cage was because he deserted the army, and that's why right, Aaron hates him. I was going to say, apparently, like the, some of the novelizations and other aspects of Willow are actually going to play a key role in the TV series. Uh, Warwick Davis eventually lets Val Kilmer out of his cage. I, I, I liked his... Because he goes through a whole plethora of emotions of why he shouldn't have the baby, and then when he says, look, you know, maybe this baby will, like, fill the void in my life. Like, maybe this is the thing that I'm missing. <laughs> if it, And it's just so he can get out of the fucking cage. But it's very entertaining. Maybe this baby will scare me straight. I'll finally become a good person. Which it doesn't, because five minutes later it's stolen by Kevin Pollock. Well, that's Pollock. exactly it. So he gives the baby, he gives the baby to Val <laughs> Kilmer, and then they leave, and then him and Samwise Gamgee start walking back to the Shire, and then he says, Sam, do you think we made the right choice? And literally it's like five minutes after they left the baby, uh, this bird being piloted by a very tiny Kevin Pollock. <laughs> flies past them carrying this baby as Kevin Pollock cries out, I stole a baby! I stole a baby! And they see the baby fly away. I stole the baby! And like, I, it's one of the best introductions of a character in a film. It's the funniest fucking thing. From Warwick Davis's perspective, he left his baby five minutes ago, and they're walking away, and he goes, do you think we made the right decision? And literally, <laughs> the baby ago. flies past them as it was stolen by a hawk. And it's like, Val Kilmer couldn't keep his eyes on it for five minutes. As you say, well, like, the laughs in this movie work. Um, I am just going to get this out of the way right now. I fucking hated the brownies. I hated them so fucking much in this whole movie. Yeah. Not just because they look like complete shit every time they are on screen. People say that George Lucas lost his mind and people often go to Jar Jar Binks as like, well, George Lucas obviously lost his mind by this point. And you're like, did you not look at the French 
Thumbelina people that live in the land of Willow who are some reason Parisian French, but they speak English with a French accent. <laughs> I I 100% agree with you. I think everything about the brownies doesn't work. Uh, it drags the movie down quite a bit, and they're in a lot of them films, so it's a big problem. They're in a lot of the movie. The the only the only part of it that's actually good is it adds to the world building of when Willow gets to the prancing pony and someone says to him, "You're covered in brownies," as if this is a regular occurrence. Because the woman at the bar is like, "You disgusting! Get them away from me!" And I'm like, "Yes, yes, get them out away from this film." The brownies are very, very, very tiny. They're essentially Lilliputians from Gulliver's Travels. And they are played by Kevin Pollock and Rick Overton. And they sort of have a French accent, but I will say that Rick Overton does a very thick Parisian accent. And Kevin Pollock does, I don't know what the fuck he's doing. Like Kevin Pollock can do anything he wants. He's an amazing impressionist. He can do any accent. Whatever the fuck he's doing here is indecipherable. Yeah. I think goes to how much effort they were putting into these characters. They are nothing if not incredibly annoying, and I hate them as well. Um, one thing I will point yeah. out, though, is that Rick Overton is the other guy from Groundhog Day. When we talked about Blank Check, <laughs> we talked about Rick Dukaman or Dukaman. I still don't know how to pronounce it. Yeah. Um, this is the other Rick. There's two Ricks who go to the drive-thru. This is the guy who says, and some flapjacks. Um, he's one of the brownies. <laughs> and so I love him for that, but I hate the brownies. Ah, uh, God, do I hate these characters. Anyway, they follow the brownies who have yeah. stolen the baby, and they lead them to Galadriel. I know. It, it, she's Galadriel, 100%. Exactly what I thought. Okay, I'm, I'm joking. She's not Galadriel. She's actually the good witch Glinda from Wizard of Oz. <laughs> I don't know. She, like, has, like, the same speech. And, like, I thought that's what, like, Peter Jackson took some of this for Lord of the Rings. But he didn't because the books came out in the, like, 40s. At any rate, yeah. So they go to the Queen of the Fairies, who the brownies are working for, and she explains the entire plot of the movie to them. So she says, Warwick, or she says, Willow, essentially. Here's the situation. I'm going to explain everything to you. This baby, his name is Alora. Laura Dannon. So this baby's name is Laura Dannon. You need to take this baby to Finn Raziel, who is a sorceress. She will help you take the baby to Tur Aslim, which is a kingdom that will look after the baby. And then this baby will destroy the evil queen Bavmorda. It's a video game. It's just, here's your four steps. You need to complete them before you can finish yeah. the mission. Um, and then they go, okay. And then he sends Samwise Gamgee back to the Shire, and he takes the one ring. Yeah, towards Skull Mountain. Or Castle Grayskull. At this point, then, he takes, as he has the baby in hand, he finds himself at the Prancing Pony. He, yeah, two of the brownies, the two that you talked about, they are with them for the rest of the show. Unfortunately. I agree with you guys, they are a bit much. As I was watching it. N not, not a bit much, they were too fucking much. <laughs> Sorry. They were a lot. I don't think there's anything about them that works. They're annoying, and every single shot of them, the composited special effects are terrible. Ron Howard, mm -hmm. all of the skills that he has and all the skills that ILM has and everyone who worked on this film, nobody could come even fucking close to what they did in 1958's Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Like, 
the compositing in this is terrible. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, there's a black outline around them at all times. Well, they're, like, just putting one shot on top of another. There's shots where, like, the brownies are, like, standing on somebody's shoulder, and they're clearly just, like, a cell of somebody, like, hovering above somebody else's shoulder. Like, it's yeah. the Great Gazoo from the Flintstones. Like, it's fucking insane. Like, it's the worst thing I've seen. There's there's even later on in the shot when uh, they're trying to help Val Kilmer break out of another cage. He takes one of their spears to try and pick the lock, and for some reason they didn't give Val Kilmer, like, a toothpick or something, and he's actually just miming his hands over top of a composited spear of them being like, no, hold it better. And I'm like, why didn't they just give him something to hold like a chopstick? <laughs> yeah, I... There's also another shot where the compositing just totally breaks down. They're clearly using chroma key with someone standing in front of a green screen to like composite Kevin Pollock in front of another shot and he's holding a spear, but like the colors start to blend because of a shadow or something and the spear he's holding just disappears at like three different occurrences. And I'm like, this, this is embarrassing. This is the worst compositing I have seen. And it's shocking because there's other special effects in this movie that I think are great. Um, it was groundbreaking in terms of its CGI morphing techniques, but also there's some really great stop motion later in the film. The cinematography is amazing, but these little people, I, I can't use that term. Little, little people? The, the, the Lilliputians compositing is just shockingly bad, and I hate it so much. But they go to the Prancing Pony to find Aragorn. So, Sean, you said nothing of that they do is good. There's one thing that they do that is good, and right. it's Kevin Pollock riding the eagle saying, I stole the baby. Okay. That yeah. is one of the funniest fucking things. I burst out laughing. If they just did that and went sent him on their way... Totally worth it. Oh, no. Okay, I agree with you. The introduction of them flying the bird yelling, I stole the baby, is quite funny. I, I agree with you. That's a good moment. Everything after that, which is the rest of the film, I <laughs> the rest <laughs> of the movie. Yeah. That's come. fair. It was so much work, too. So much work. Like, I just, it, I can't None imagine how works. much effort they put into it. None of and it. And none of it works. <laughs> and like, are they needed? They don't really do much. No, but George Lucas wanted them, so they put them in the movie. So that's, that's why they're there. They are the Gungans. They are, yeah, this, this is just, to me, I was like, okay, no, George Lucas was always fucking nuts. <laughs> like I said, George Lucas just takes stuff and throws it in the pot. And this is Gulliver's Travels. And he said, let's just do Gulliver's Travels. Yeah. And then at the end of the day, they're sitting in the screening and he's sitting there and he's like, I think we put too much in. This doesn't work. It shouldn't have been there. It's not necessary to the narrative and it's mm -hmm. annoying and it looks like garbage. I mean, at least Jar Jar Binks was cutting edge technology, you know, at least at the time that looked beyond anything we had seen before. This can't even measure up to like 1958 effects. It's genuinely no. awful. I think they were trying to do that. I think George Lucas was like, let's have a character that's in this movie for like 70% of the runtime that are like tiny, tiny people that we have to like composite in and make it look good. And it didn't work and it failed. Yeah. Like it was try him trying to flex and be like, let's do what I, I always wanted to do. And it just didn't work. So at the Prancing Pony, um, they walk in and the bartender goes, we don't serve their kind here. They're referring to <laughs> the pecs as they keep referring to them. And every time I go, are you allowed to say that? 
Can we say that in a movie? Um, do we need to put that Disney Plus warning at the beginning? This has uh, unfavorable treatment <laughs> to cultures. But they find in the back room that Val Kilmer is there and he is dressed as a woman. And the reason he's dressed as a woman is because he has done two things in the couple of hours since they last saw him. One, he lost the baby, his one job. Two, he already got into trouble by sleeping with another man's wife. And brushed his teeth. And he's brushed his teeth. Sorry, <laughs> he's done three things. He did those two things and then he brushed his teeth. Maybe that's how he lost the baby. He was brushing his teeth. Yeah, there he we did go. he did have his priorities at the time. <laughs> this drunken man is clearly going to sexually assault Val Kilmer. It's a very weird scene. Oh, yeah. Uh, not particularly comfortable. Immediately goes for a boob grab, like first thing. The scene got a chuckle out of my wife when I believe his proposition to her is he says, do you want to procreate? And Val Kilmer just says, tempting, but no. <laughs> and that, that actually, that got a chuckle for her. Because Sorsha and the army has arrived and they're looking for the baby, Val Kilmer has to get away from this lecherous man who has very bad things planned. Willow needs to get away from the army, so we're going to kill the baby. So all of them escape out the window. And now we get James Horner's Indiana Jones theme. Thank you. And so this is what I want to say about James Horner. He has developed two motifs for this film. He has developed Willow's theme, which is a soaring violin melody. And he has developed Mad Mordigan's theme, which is a militaristic dotted rhythm played by trumpets in unison. And it is just Indiana Jones through and through. It's dun-da-dun-dun-da-dun-dun-da-dun. It's just the Indiana Jones theme. Yeah. Um, I noticed that too. And he plays it over and over and over again. And eventually I said, this is a bit much, James Horner. Can't you tone it back a bit? The thing about the Raiders March, which is the Indiana Jones theme, is that it only shows up like three times in each movie. Like, John Williams is very reserved. He only brings it out at the most triumphant moments. James Horner has like two go-to moves. He's like, <laughs> is this a Willow's theme moment? Or is huh. this a Mad Mortigan's theme moment? And he's he's playing one of two things at any given time. And it yeah. gets really fucking old. I said the same thing. I was like, this is Indiana Jones, isn't it? And and then I was like, I've heard this somewhere else too besides this. And then I was doing some digging. And apparently uh, throughout like the late 80s, early 90s, they just licensed that theme out for trailers. And it was on like so many trailers. Because it sounds like Indiana Jones, but isn't Indiana Jones. Exactly, right? So it, it's, they can, they can just kind of, you know, they're going for that idea of uh, it's adventure film, right? But they can't just basically steal it directly from Indiana Jones. So it was apparently on a ton of stuff. And they got like 10 grand a pop for it every time they license it out. Warwick and Val Kilmer escape on a horse and carriage, and we get a big action sequence where the army is pursuing them. It's basically the Raiders of the Lost Ark, Indiana Jones with the Jeep and the horse. And Except for Val Kilmer's in a dress the entire action scene. No, he's wearing... Uh... <laughs> He's wearing harem pants, I think, because they're tucked into his boots. I thought it was a dress that he, uh, like, modified into pants. Start fucking sewing shit while they were escaping from the prancing <laughs> That's what I thought, like, the whole way through. I was like, wasn't he wearing a dress? And, like, he, like, he his whole outfit, modified he, like, his clothes. Changed. No, they're like yeah. harem pants, like Bobby said. Okay. Gotcha, um, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. At any rate, here's the thing. I, I like the sequence. 
yeah, I think it's, it's a good, good action sequence. I have my criticisms about Horner's score. I hate the fact that every time they cut to the brownies, I want to gouge my eyes out. But I think this whole <laughs> sequence is fun. You know, it's a ripoff of Indiana Jones shtick, but it's fun. It's good. And I liked it. The whole thing worked but for it's, me. But it's, it's, it's George Lucas ripping off himself. So it, you forgive it. Yeah. Like the whole thing worked <laughs> for me. I thought it was a great action sequence. So they escape and Val Kilmer agrees to take them to the island where they can find um, the – sorry, what's the name of this mage? There's so many weird names that they that they make up. Finn Rizal. Okay. Yeah, so Rizal. Val, yeah. Val Kilmer agrees to take them to the island where they can find Finn Rizal. So they go there, and what do you know? It's Yoda. George Lucas <laughs> does the exact same thing again, where you think you're going to find the great sage magician. You think you're going to find the most powerful warlock in the world, uh, and then it's just a tiny little creature. Oh, what a surprise. It's a sugar baby, isn't it? Zabumafu. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I will say the thing that shocked me the most about this is how good the mouth moving is when that creature talks. Oh, yeah, that is pretty good. And I don't know how they did it. How do you think they did it? I don't know if that's like early CG or if they're just like animating over the frame after it's done. Yeah. They're clever to film it in the way that they're always filming it from the top. So you only ever see the bottom jaw moving. You don't ever see its mouth opening. Yeah. But I, I was surprised at how good that effect is. And I, I like I like the way the actress is embodied when in her voice she's embodying whatever animal the form is. Like she talks like she would you'd think a sugar baby would talk, and then later on when she's a crow, she's a crow. When she's a goat, she's a goat. Yeah, I thought all that was funny. This uh, Raziel explains that she's been turned into a sugar baby, and so what she needs to do is she needs to be turned back into her human form by a sorcerer using that magic wand that was given to willow but willow doesn't know how to use it yet because he's not yet a sorcerer and even though he's told the magic words they don't work when they come out of his mouth and so he doesn't know what to do and unfortunately at this time val kilmer has said peace out i got you to the island i'm done with everything i needed to do and just like last time he doesn't get five minutes away before he fucks everything up this time he's captured by the opposing army and they then use him to find out where Willow is. And Willow's like, I cannot leave you alone for five minutes. Every time I turn my back on you, you fuck everything up for us. And Val Kilmer's like, and he's got his little goofy little face on. And he's like, I'm sorry, guys. (laughs) Val Kilmer keeps mentioning what an amazing uh, sword fighter he is, but he just doesn't have a sword yet. And it's funny because he fucking sucks at everything else. He's like, I'm sorry, I suck at this. But if I had a sword. I like in this scene when he's questioning the sugar baby. And she says, he says, what do you even look like? And she says, I'm a beautiful young woman. And he looks to Willow and says, okay, go faster. (laughs) I like when he comes back that his hair and pants have been torn to shreds and he's basically just wearing a pink loincloth at that point when he's kept, when he's been captured. I like the amount of leg he was showing. He's got, uh, he whipped on the back like he was tortured. I just assumed that in the five minutes between (laughs) when he left Warwick Davis and got captured by the opposing army, he slept with another man's wife. And that's why he was basically (laughs) naked. And I like that when he gets captured, Sorcia's first order of business is to put him in clothes because in my wife's words, it's too distracting. (laughs) This is... 80s heartthrob masculinity in the sense that Val Kilmer is A, not on steroids, B, has more than 1% body fat. That is not to disparage his physique in any way. He is a very handsome man in this movie. He's still got abs in it, man. If this movie was made today, 
Val Kilmer would look very, very different. Sure. You're not going to take your shirt off in a movie today without, you know, human growth hormone. There, there's the very trim with a little bit of bulk, you know, versus just like, you know, Chris Evans. There was one thing I did like. I wasn't sure what the, the reason for it was. Um, when, um, I think it was because they were trying to show that Mad Mardigan is actually a good guy. Um, when they're both Willow and Mad Mardigan are being like, Toad behind, uh, they're, they're chained up to the back of a wagon and they're having to walk behind the wagon. Uh, when the, when, uh, Shersha rides up, like he immediately gets in the way of Willow, uh, from Sersha. So like, he's like protecting Willow. And then like, as Willow's stumbling later on, he like is carrying Willow on his shoulders. And I'm like, okay, like, I think it's a save the cat moment because yeah. they've, they've gone quite far in showing him to be a, a selfish hand solo character, but they don't have a heroic shows up at the end to save everybody. So they have to start transitioning him into being everybody's favorite lovable protagonist. Um, so they start showing him really taking care of Willow, even though he keeps throwing these racial slurs, not racial slurs, but he keeps throwing these slurs at him. Um, anyway, talk about snow stuff. I'll be back in a second. <laughs> Um, so they're at the camp trying to escape, right? Um, they're making, we'll, we'll make base camp here and go for the summit tomorrow, I think is what they're doing. And, uh, there's a whole big long scene with Willow and Mad Mardigan in a cage. Willow has the branch that is the magic wand, right? Have we talked about that? He gets the magic wand from the, the... From Gladrail? Yeah, yeah, it's Gladrail's magic wand. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he turns... You're a wizard, Harry Potter. <laughs> he, he turns uh, the possum into a crow. You know, that's as good as it can get yeah. uh, for his magic right now, because Willow's literally just a sleight-of-hand magician, not an actual wizard. Uh, so he's doing the best he yeah. can and turns it into a crow. Where, when he fucks it up, Kevin Pollock or the other one, I don't remember, I just tried to tune them up because I hated them. Yeah. Hits him in the face with his satchel of love potion. And I was like, why do they have love potion? And why does he beat people with it? Correct. <laughs> it's, it's, it's only for this one, one reason, like this plot contrivance, but they needed that. So Val Kilmer could fall in love with Sersha. And this to my wife, as we were watching, she said, this was her words where she said, she is a badass warrior princess who just needs the D. Yeah. And yep. then she paused and went, yes, this woman was written by George Lucas. <laughs> and Sorsha, yep. as soon as she discovers that a man will love her, abandons all of her loyalties and her family to run off with this man. Reminder, she does not have any love potion. That is just what uh -huh. George Lucas thinks of women, apparently. My wife dissected this scene a little bit, because earlier in the movie, Bavmorda is told that his, her daughter will betray her, and she says, I trust her daughter more. Than you. And then, as my wife kind of said, she said, and then in walks Val Kilmer, literally the only man who is not 200 years old she has dealt with in her entire life, and betrays her mother to run away with him. And my wife had pointed out that there must be a scene back at Castle Grayskull where the High Wizard is being like, I told you, one 20 year old man, one, and you could have avoided this. <laughs> Everyone is either an old, like, wizard or a fucking skeleton man. Like, just <laughs> yeah. get someone in here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The dude is wearing bones. He's dressed in bones come yeah. on your, your daughter needs friends her own age apparently though there was more reasoning behind it i mean i'm not saying that it was really good but it's much better than what they did um so at what is tiris the castle later on 
one of the stone people, the people that are frozen in stone, was her father. Oh, yeah. I'd, that's not in the movie. That's not in the movie at all. There's a whole backstory where the king of Tirislene is Sersha's father, and he somehow gets unstonified and says, you should not be with your mom. She's bad. And that is also why she joins the Rebel Alliance, uh, because her stone father told her to. What we have here is that Val Kilmer has escaped from his prison. He has tried to seduce Sorsha, but the army has been awoken to his presence. So he takes Warwick Davis, jumps on a shield, and then slides down the mountain as if it's a snowboard. And then we get an action sequence where we cut between Val Kilmer and Warwick Davis going, ah, and then wide (laughs) shots. Josh Gorbin and a Chucky doll being rocketed <laughs> down the mountain. <laughs> like, as I watched it, there were moments where they cut from the close-up of Val Kilmer going, to like a wide shot of something that is clearly another man holding a doll. And I went, wait, what? <laughs> and then I had to like back it up. It's like, it, it's got like, it's missing an eye. <laughs> it's like, what happened to Warren Davis? What happened? Um... Uh. It's a weird sequence, uh, but it's kind It's kind of exciting if you can ignore the um, stunt doubles. Basically, they arrive at the bottom of the mountain where there is a small town. They hide out in the town. I'm just going to skip through Sean. this quickly because the Sean. army... Sean. Go ahead, Rob. You can't skip over the Val Kilmer snow log. <laughs> like, you can't skip over that. <laughs> I kind of want to. It's so fucking dumb. It's the dumbest thing in the entire movie. Like, (laughs) and we're talking about the brownies here. Val Kilmer falls off the shield. So Warwick Davis rides this shield snowboard down into this, like, mountain town at the bottom of the mountain. And Val Kilmer then rolls down the mountain himself behind them. And as they crash into this town, they look behind them and Val Kilmer has been transformed into a giant (laughs) comical snowball that then... (laughs) Like, hits a building, explodes, and Val Kilmer stumbles out. It's both tonally inconsistent with the rest of the movie. Yep. And incredibly dumb. And the thing that bugs me the most is that if the scene had just Val Kilmer tumbling down the hill, it would have been hilarious. And screaming, yeah. It would have been really, really funny. It would have been a great moment, but they weirdly ruined it by doing this dumb Muppet joke. Again, just goes to show George Lucas has always been fucking nuts. I I just, we couldn't, we couldn't skip over that. It was such a, it was so glaring. Like, that's such a weird thing to include in this movie. They hide in a building, the army comes in, they kidnap Sorsha, they use Sorsha as a human shield to escape, they run out of the mountains into, like, a desert canyon, and then they leave Sorsha there, and then they escape all the way to the kingdom where they're going. I can't remember the name of it. Tirislene. Gasparine. What's the name of the town? <laughs> Marineland. Marineland. <laughs> <laughs> they Marineland. The castle that they were looking for. Is this, yeah. is this, this is the scene where you get the payoff that 
Val Kilmer is actually good with a sword. Because Matt, as you said, Matt Mardigan says, I'm the best swordsman that's ever lived. And because, as you say, everything else he says is bullshit and he, and he bumbles at everything. When he finally picks up a sword, he's fucking amazing with it and is a complete badass. And Willow's response to him is, hey, you are actually good with a sword. Yeah. Okay, I'll say two things to this. First of all, Val Kilmer learned one trick with the sword. He does the it trick over is, and over. He spins it like a like a fucking helicopter blade and then catches it again. And that's all he does. He does the one trick over and over again to make himself look like a good swordsman. There's really bad choreography for the sword fighting in this movie. I genuinely don't... I, I thought it was very underwhelming considering how much they hyped it up. Um, Princess Bride is a very good counterexample. Princess Bride has amazing fucking sword fighting in it. I don't think it's fair to compare the two. No. Because... One have, like, rapiers. They've got, like, very thin blades where you can do a lot of, like, arrow-thin choreography. And Val Kilmer has, like, a broadsword, which you cannot do any of that with. It's totally different fighting styles with swords, but they really cheaped out on the choreography. You're right. He learned one move, and then they were like, we'll just cut around it. And they don't cut around it. And it's bad. It really is. Um, but one thing I will say later on, um, he gets Eric's sword. Uh, at the very end, when he's fighting Skeletor, and Eric's yeah, the sword, American Viking, the American Viking, um, has it's like a guard on the wrist on the sword, which you have to hold, and it like it completely immobilizes your wrist from moving, so he can't actually do his one move. Like he gets his friend's sword to be like, "I'll avenge you," and then he can't actually sword fight with it. Like, and immediately gets his ass handed to him. It's so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> and then he just grabs another sword and is like good with fighting. They go to <laughs> Marine Land. <laughs> Where everyone's been turned to stone for yeah. some reason. Yeah. Well the evil the evil Snow Queen has done it. He says it's trolls. What happens here is they find that everyone's been turned to stone. They're worried the trolls are around, and they think it is the magic of the evil queen Bevmorda. They know that the army is right behind them. And so they barricade the doors and Val Kilmer puts on his own armor, takes out as much of the ammunition as he can, and they prepare to fight an entire battle amongst themselves. At this point, Warwick Davis flees up this castle to try to hide, and there are two things that happen in a row. One shot is as he's crossing a bridge in the tower, you see what is apparently a troll crawling along the underside of this bridge behind him. And it comes out of nowhere and is not built up at all. And to me was fucking terrifying because just watching it, I didn't remember this scene from as a kid watching it right now. I was like, what the fuck is that? Warwick Davis is crossing a bridge and there's this monster that just comes out of nowhere in this wide shot and it's crawling behind. And there's a troll under the bridge. Yeah. And I was like, what the fuck is that? And then he gets to the other side of the bridge and the troll jumps out. It, it is a monkey costume you buy at the like corner party favor store for the Halloween party you forgot to prepare for. Uh-huh. They ran out of budget. They like they they either got a discount on gorilla costumes or they or they just ran out of budget. It's a very weird weird sequence because there's three scenes. There's one a wide shot, like I said, troll under the bridge that comes out of nowhere, and it really shocked me watching it. I was like, "What is that?" Then they go to a close up where it jumps out, and I was like, "Oh, that is the worst costume I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> that is comically bad." And then Warwick Davis attempts sorcery on it, points his magic wand at it, and it turns into this pile of yes. screaming goo. 
What fucking smell was that? <laughs> what the fuck? This scene does not track with the rest of the movie because this At is all. like some weird like Cronenberg body horror shit. It's fucking horrifying. This man in a yeah. ape costume <laughs> that he bought at Spirit Halloween <laughs> is horrifyingly transformed into goo as he screams in pain and then the goo a face comes out of the goo and then screams in even more pain as if it's to say kill me i am in hell <laughs> and then warwick davis just like pushes it with his foot He's just like, I don't want to look at this. So he just like nudges it and it falls off the bridge. <laughs> He's like, nope, no, thank you very much. Out of here. <laughs> I agree with you, Bob. It's totally inconsistent with the movie. But just in terms of special effects, it shocked me because it's like a very terrible special effect followed by what is genuinely a very impressive and terrifying special effect. And this very much series so. of shots is baffling to me. It reminded me of the thing. Like when it turns into the 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 globby brain thing, shit starts coming out of it. It like looked like the thing. It was it was so different. As it falls into the moat, I guess for the castle, it then continues to transform into a two-headed dragon creature, yeah. which doesn't make any fucking sense what spell was that that willow yeah. did? like he doesn't know magic right but he can just he just says like one word swings his wand and creates a two-headed fire-breathing dragon demon that's a really fucking lucky guess i have to right? say yeah like he just he just guessed a random series of syllables and uh wow did he get it on the nose <laughs> but uh then it becomes this stop motion monster that starts terrorizing all of the army that is invading the castle um I will say that there are, again, this movie is kind of like a grab bag. One shot will kind of be terrible special effects. The next shot will be genuinely impressive stuff. There are some shots where this stop motion dragon will like take uh, a live action uh, soldier in its jaws and like pick it up and shake it around. And I'm like, wow, I, I don't. I don't know how they did that shot. That's a really impressive shot that looked really cool. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff in here, but it's just, it's, it's like you don't even know what's going to happen. Every time they cut to something new, you're like, what fucking budget did they have for this next shot? I don't know. <laughs> they fight. Um, and throughout the course of this shot, um, Sersha does nothing except for just like stare at Val Kilmer fighting everybody. Like her character is left to just basically, stop having any autonomy and just stare at the pretty boy doing the the masculine things yeah and then from the movie i guess you decide that she's so overcome with feminine desire yeah that she decides to switch allegiances because as bobby says she's won over by the d apparently mm-hmm. i mean i know in real in real life like they did get married like they met and had children and wait sorry what are you talking about Val Kilmer and, and Joanna Whaley like did get married after this I movie. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, oh. yeah. They did. So, she, so you mean she was won over by the D? Wow. She was by Val Kilmer. <laughs> I mean, Val Kilmer is very charming in this movie. And you know what's really funny is my wife actually said she's like, I mean, I get it, and I was like, I'm sitting right here, babe. <laughs> I, I get it. Like if if my if like Val Kilmer walked in the room like that, it'd be like, it's okay, babe, go. He's Batman. I understand completely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do we need to at all talk about? How, for some apparent reason, the dragon's head blows up? No. I don't... Okay. It was. It stood out to me, because it just blows up. I don't know why that happened, and I don't care. 
stuff happens okay. in this movie. Like I said, the pacing carries a lot <laughs> it of just the weight of this movie in the sense that you just keep moving forward and you're like, don't think about what just happened. Don't think about why that dragon's head exploded. We're on to the next scene. Now we're fighting a different battle at a different castle. I assumed it was because it couldn't open its mouth, so all the pressure built up from it trying to breathe fire and exploded itself. Maybe. That's a lot of logic you applied to that that makes a yeah. lot more sense than it should. Maybe Warwick Davis did another Latin spell that he invented <laughs> off the top of his head. Just made up more random words and blew it up. <laughs> Hedus explodus. Does the other army show up to this castle? That and- is what happens. So the American Viking, Viking. army <laughs> shows up as the cavalry. And so Bevmorda's army flees after having captured the baby. And so the American Viking army now is there to protect them. And they take the American Viking army towards Bevmorda's castle to try to reclaim the baby before Bevmorda can complete the ritual. I was just going to say, apparently Bevmorda is like literally next door to this other castle because they're like, quick, to right? Mordor. And then they are just there. Yeah. No, the camera just pans across the street and there's just the other castle. And they're like, that one, let's go there now. Um, three things happen. I'm just going to go through it pretty quickly. They get to the castle and they're like... Yo, Bebmorda, we're going to, like, ruin your shit. And then Bebmorda's like, I don't think so. I got the magic powers. And she turns them all into pigs. It's kind of a horrifying sequence. It's, like, body horror stuff that shows up, yeah. The the, the effects on that are good. There's some good effects here. Almost like American Werewolf in London-style physical transformations where they inflate... Um, prosthetics on people's arms to make it look like it's transforming into like pig hoofs and stuff. It's quite impressive and it's quite terrifying. Again, out of nowhere, you're just like, what am I watching? Where did this come from? And so the entire army is turned into pigs other than Warwick Davis, who... Willow, because she says the crow flies down and says, Willow, you need to protect yourself. Yeah. And so now we get Willow's big triumphant moment because she says, Willow, you need to be a sorcerer. And so his entire character arc is he pretends to be a sorcerer at the beginning with his fake their illusions, Michael style tricks. <laughs> he doesn't get to become the Both wizard. times you made that joke, Sean. I laughed. <laughs> you thrown it away. Both times. It's such a good. Such a good delivery. He doesn't get to become the wizard's apprentice, but here it's saying, Willow, you need to use actual magic. You need to say the magic words and you need to believe them and become a wizard. So he points his magic wand and turns her into a human again. And she's an old woman and she looks herself, she looks at herself and she says, has it been so long? Which is actually kind of a sad moment. I thought that was actually kind of poignant. Like she's been transformed into an animal for so long that she actually used to be a beautiful young woman. And it's been like 50 years and she doesn't know what happened. But now that she's a human again, she can use her magical powers. So she transforms the army back into humans. And they use that to mislead the opposing army because... Bevmorda thinks they're all still pigs. And so Warwick Davis goes out and he says, we're going to fight you. Come out and fight us. And so they open up the gates. And then all of a sudden, the human army jumps up behind him. And they say, ha, we're not pigs anymore. We got you good. <laughs> ah, we're not pigs anymore. <laughs> I mean, that's exactly what happened. And then they run up to try to stop her from killing the baby as part of the ritual. And you get what is a very bad wizard fight 
Um, I think certainly compared to something like in Fellowship of the Ring, which doesn't even use special effects and is really impressive. And in this, they shoot bad lightning at each other and it sucks. It's it's funny because my wife actually felt the exact opposite. She hates that battle because she thinks it's just a bunch of boring old men fighting. Uh, she enjoyed this one quite a bit more. Wow. Disagree completely. I love the wizard battle in Fellowship and I hated this, but I guess we're just on polar opposites. I, I was excited for this battle because I was like, oh, these women are going to be out for blood. And... It pans away for a second, and when it comes back, uh, Rizelle has, like, claw marks down the entirety of her face. And they're like, why did they not show that bit? That part of the fight was fucking juicy. Yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. And they're, like, choking and punching one another. Like, by the end of the fight, they're trying to fucking kill one another, and it's kind of sweet. And then as this is going on, Warwick Davis comes in. This is Willow's story. He's the title character. He's in the final battle. He's facing off against the evil queen. (laughs) And the evil queen has defeated the sorceress. She's going to defeat Warwick. And Warwick takes the baby in his hands. And he says, I am going to send this baby somewhere where you cannot find her because I am a great magician. I have magical powers. And the queen says, I don't believe you. That's Nobody can do something like that. I'm more powerful than you. And then Warwick Davis takes the baby in front of him and then pulls the baby's shawl away. And the baby has gone. And the queen goes, What? Oh my god, this crazy. How did you do that? That is nuts. Willow burgle cuts him. She pulls a burgle cut. She's like, what happened? How did you do that, do that again? Do that yeah, exactly. again. Do it slower. Let me watch. She's so shocked by this that she explodes. I mean, there's kind of a thing where like the ritual has lightning coming down and then she stumbles into the lightning. But My wife said the same thing. She was like, so why did she explode in lightning? And I was like, I think because she has the blood magic and everything set up for the ritual, but she's so shocked. Yeah. She trips over everything and she stands in the blood and performs the ritual on herself to expel her own soul into oblivion. Yeah. I mean, that's not really explained in the movie, but it's obvious enough that you can put two and two together and say that that's the explanation, that she stumbles into her own ritual. But your explanation is <laughs> that her head explodes. Then he defeats the evil queen. Happily ever after, they go back to the Shire. And I got to be honest, because so much of this movie followed the, the Lord of the Rings, I genuinely was shocked that there was no scouring of the Shire. Like, when he got back there, Beeblebrox was going to have, like, enslaved everybody. (laughs) Like, they were going to come back. He was, like, having everybody working in the mines, like he threatened at the beginning. And they were going to be like, no, what happened? Our innocence is lost. Instead, he goes back home. He finds his wife. He finds his family. And he shows the high... Billy Barty. I mean, Billy Barty was probably pretty high. That eh? he has all of these magical powers and he throws a rock into the air and the rock turns into a dove. And then the high old one gives him a little one eye squint like he does and everybody laughs. And then you cut to the credits and Willow is over. We don't actually find out what happens to um, Val Kilmer, do we? He stays in the and, – and Saoirse? No, you absolutely do. They stay in – the kingdom with all the stone people, and they agree to, they don't say it, but they're holding the baby, they're going to get married, and, you know, okay, the end. They will go into the West, and they will diminish. (laughs) But they were all of them deceived. (laughs) For there was another baby. (laughs) (laughs) I was taking a sip of beer right there, Sean. One baby to rule them all. <laughs> I was about to do a spit take there. That's, that's, the, that's the plot of the movie, though. <laughs> One baby to find them. 
One baby to rule them all. What did we think of Willow? It, it wasn't one of my go-to fantasy or, like, movies as a kid. Um, but it was, like, uh, probably every, like, five years, I would probably be like, oh, yeah, that movie exists. And then I would, like, seek it out and watch it. And my wife loves it. She, she watches. She wants to watch it, like, once a year. All of the things that we discussed, yeah, like... The brownies, we stopped talking about them entirely after uh, The Prancing Pony because fuck the brownies. I agree with you. Warwick Davis is awesome in this uh, movie, uh, especially, as you said, when you consider he's 17. Um, and all the supporting characters, even like the American Viking, I thought like the world building, the the secondary third characters they put into it actually just like make this feel like a real place. Couple it with... The real locations they shot on, all that stuff. I dug this movie. I put it... Oh, crack the top five. Number four. Wow. Number four. It's Return to Oz, Darby O'Gill, Hocus Pocus, Willow, and then The Great Muppet Caper. It's got its flaws, but I, I could watch this movie again tomorrow, honestly. Like, legitimately. I went into this movie thinking I was going to like it a lot more than I did. Um, I was really excited to watch this movie because I'd only ever seen it once. I probably rented the same copy you did from Family Video from the same Family Video when I watched it. And it turns out I had very little memory of this movie. I remembered key parts. I remembered a couple key elements. Like I say, I remembered the skull. I really, really, really hated the brownies. Like, I don't know if I can state how much I hated them. The movie's kind of clunky, too. Like, I know you said, like, it works in its pacing, but it it is a very, like, clunky movie. Um, it, It was interesting to see George Lucas back when he wasn't maybe as crazy or surrounded himself with not as many yes men would be like, no, 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 that's a stupid idea. I'm actually going to put this above Sign of Zorro, and I think, oh, you know, this is tough. It might actually be just above bed knobs and Broomsticks or just below bed knobs and Broomsticks, depending on the day. So what number is that? Just that's, uh, It's it's going to be around, like, number 10. Number 10 or 11. I'll, I'll make up my mind on that a bit later. So I think I'm in between you two guys. Um, So I went into this hoping I would like it. I remembered not liking it, but I thought that it might be one of those movies that I would like more upon revisiting. And I was uh, happily proven right in that regard. There's a lot to like about this movie. I think the cinematography and the vistas are great. I think the acting and the characters are great. Warwick Davis is great. Val Kilmer is great. I think the story is like all of George Lucas's approaches. It's a grab bag of just most basic human legends that have always existed (laughs) but i do think the pacing carries the movie forward at a very good speed um i think the special effects are hit and miss the brownies are terrible both as characters and as a special effect but some of the cgi effects some of the stop motion is pretty good I put this at number seven for me, um, which puts it just above Freaky Friday 2003 and just below the Country Bears, which (laughs) to me is... I want to stress more about how much I enjoyed the Country Bears. Uh, what's hilarious, Sean, is I was looking at my list and I was like, oh, the Country Bears is in my top 10. Like, how is that a fucking thing? And you just brought it back up, too. It's hilarious that that is so high. And this is another one that it's like, this movie is by no means bad. And as much as I, like, didn't enjoy it as much as I expected it to, I'm like, this movie's good. It's fine. It's When it's fun, it's a lot of fun. And if anyone says that they love this movie, I'm like, I totally mm-hmm. see why you love this movie. This is... Is this this movie is a lot of fun when it wants to be. This isn't a Disney film, so I didn't 
even look into what other films Disney made the year that this came out. This is a Lucasfilm film. What other movies did a Lucasfilm release? <laughs> I think they did Howard the Duck around this time. And that movie sucks. So there you go, people. Uh, <laughs> we're wrapping up here. I don't know if you two have anything else to say. Not off the top of my head. I did actually Google what movies were released by Disney in uh, 1988. Holy shit. Okay, Rob, take it away. I'm actually I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at the same list myself. So feature films, we have, in January, they started with The Brave Little Toaster. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was one of them. Um, you've got Good Morning Vietnam, which is a touchstone picture. Um, Shoot to Kill, touchstone. Haven't seen that one. DOA, touchstone. Yeah, they looks like they re-released Fox and the Hound. Gotta get that Kurt Russell in there. Uh, you've got Return to Snowy River. They re-released Bambi. Uh, you have Tom Cruise's Cocktail. Uh-huh. Oh, fuck, yeah. That's on Disney+. Plus. Really? I've never seen Cocktail. Neither have I. I've never seen Cocktail. We should do it. Yeah, we should do it. Eventually. Aruba, Jamaica. Ooh, I wanna take ya. All right. I only know that. I only know that Beach Boys song. Are from, you gonna say you only know the Beach Boys song from the Muppet video where they do from the Muppets? That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> yes. Because that, that music video is fucking hilarious. I was gonna say, Bobby, you don't drink, but Sean and I, when we watch cocktail, when we do the recording, we'll have to have a bunch of cocktails while we do it and just get. Ooh, we'll have to do a drinking game for cocktail. Okay, that's coming up yeah. next year, 2023. People, tune in. We're gonna do Tom Cruise's <laughs> cocktail. So after after cocktail, we have another touchstone. This is a touchstone heavy year it's touchstone um, yeah you have touchstones the rescue uh you have heartbreak hotel oh sh- uh, uh bobby 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 i i clicked through the rescue i gotta read the plot synopsis to what you. is this please do i don't know what this is uh, the rescue is a 1988 adventure film about a group of teenagers who infiltrate a north korean prison to rescue their naval seal father <laughs> jesus fucking christ oh my god right? <laughs> Okay, can we watch that? <laughs> if it's on, <laughs> Disney. on Disney Plus, I want to watch that. <laughs> okay. November 11th, Touchstone released Ernest Saves Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> That's their Remembrance Day release? Yep. Yeah. This Remembrance Day, honor the veterans with Ernest, Ernest Saves Christmas. Um, I mean, I guess because Brave Little Toaster was Disney, but that was actually like, as we said, I think we mentioned that very recently, that was Pixar before it was Pixar. Yeah, and it was a pseudo-independent release that Disney like Last Navigator, only became involved in sort of after the fact, but go ahead. So the only actual Disney release of the year was Oliver and Company. And then we close out the year with uh, Touchstone's Beaches. Oh, wow. Bette Midler, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, um, now we know we're doing cocktail next year. Um, <laughs> I'm actually excited <laughs> Coming that. out next week, we've already planned to do D2, The Mighty Duck. So tune in to our Christmas special. Why is that our Christmas special? Well, you'll have to ask Bobby. We'll talk about it next week. But Bobby, to end this episode, I'm going to give you a hard one, man. Let's see if you can do it. I want you to tell people to tune in to the podcast War Tennis Shoes, and I want you to do it in your best Billy Barty High Aldwin voice. Okay. Is the eye closed enough? I can't tell. You're squinting the one eye. It's perfect. Audience, he looks just like him. (laughs) Tune in next week to the podcast War Tennis Shoes. How? How are you so good at this, you jackass? How are you so good at this? <laughs> you bring me so much joy every week, Bobby. And that's the show. If you have a suggestion for a movie we should cover next time, send us an email at thepodcastwartennisshoes at gmail.com. We can also be reached on Facebook and Twitter at podwar. That's at P-O-D-W-O-R-E. And if you like the show, give us a good review on your podcast platform. It really helps us out. We hope you tune in next time. Thanks.